as you know, we're continuing a indefinitely long series through the book of James. Um, for our guests, I have about six opportunities a year to share from the Bible with the congregation. And I've chosen to work my way through James, which who knows how long that will take because it depends on how often I get to stand here before you. Uh, but we're coming into the book of James here and we're approaching the second chapter. And as I said last week, James has started to make a turn from uh, the sort of theoretical things we talk about in the first chapter now to the more practical considerations and application uh, in the second and following chapters. So if you've found James chapter 2 uh, in your Bibles, uh, if you'll please stand with me for reverence for the Word of God. James chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith? and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich and the, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So last week, um, just by way of brief recap, last week we talked about um, various things going on in the book of James here. We talked about how uh, James encourages us to submit ourselves to the word of God, primarily through the preaching of the word, but also as we read it and study it on our own. He kind of told us not to talk back to the word of God, to be quick to hear, but not quick to speak. He also gave us some concrete examples of what it looks like to uh, submit yourself to the word. And primarily one of the examples he gave us was that we were to uh, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so today, as, as we look at this, this is, can be seen as a further expansion of that theme. So James commands in this first one, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us that pure and spotless religion is in part that we serve and love the most needy people around us. So this week he's going to show uh, by way of an illustration, but also application to the congregation and the people he was writing to, what that does not look like. So in this section, as we expand that, there's three primary points. James is, James is talking about what he calls the sin of partiality. So we have the first point is that partiality is a sin. And we'll unpack what partiality is and why it's a sin. That's the second point is why is partiality a sin? And then the third point is why the sin of partiality is contrary to the gospel. So we'll talk about the fact that partiality is a sin. 
We'll talk about the reason or why partiality is a sin, and we'll close out our sermon by talking about why this sin is so contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So James starts out, uh, and again, he, he recognizes that he's approaching a topic that was likely sensitive to his congregation. And we see that by this use of sort of familial language. We see this through Paul's writings and in other places. When an author is about to say something hard, they often will address the congregation or the recipients of their letter with a familiar term. So he says, my brothers. So he's putting himself among them and he's, he's trying to point out that they are family, that this is a family discussion within the people of God. So I will say, my brothers, please take this uh, in that light, because this is a difficult passage for us, particularly in the climate and the context that we live in. So he starts out and says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, some translations view this phrase faith, this word faith, as kind of your personal faith. Um, the, the NASB um, and similar translations will say, show no partiality as you hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the phrase, the faith, is a technical term in the New Testament. Paul uses it frequently. Uh, we see it most prominently in the book of Jude, which we'll, I'll read that verse here in a second. But this term, the faith, is a reference to an established body of doctrine that was uh, circulating in the early church. So we see Paul talks about um, the things that are first importance, that Jesus Christ came, that he died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was raised again according to the scripture. So there's this set of doctrines that was called the faith in the early church. And so Jude in, in the third verse of Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So as we approach this sin of partiality and we talk about how it's contrary to the faith, we're not just talking about uh, some vague idea that, that being partial or showing favoritism or discrimination, however we want to phrase it, is contrary to Christian practice. That's how we often approach this text is that um, racism or other prejudicial actions or favoring the rich over the poor, that that's just, that's just contrary to Christian practice. But in reality, it actually strikes at the vitals of the very definition of Christian faith. So that's going to be the third point of this sermon. That will be where we camp out for a lot of our time. But it's important to establish this up front. James isn't just saying that if you show partiality, that you are uh, acting in a way contrary to your personal confession or to your personal piety. He's saying that a person who shows partiality is denying the faith itself. Now, there are different uh, there are different hierarchies and importances of different doctrines. The doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation is more important than how we uh, believe the Bible tells us to arrange our church and to govern the church, right? The doctrine of the inspiration of scripture or the justification of the sinner by faith alone is more important than what we think is going to happen in the last times. But it still is the case that James is saying that exercising the sin of partiality reveals a heart and a belief system that is contrary to the Christian faith. So if you take one thing away from that today, that's your takeaway. That's the thing you write on your mirror. Partial or the sin of partiality is contrary to the Christian faith. He continues now to sort of give an example of a hypothetical um, problem. 
But this hypothetical problem is one of those hypotheticals that's meant to sort of get at a real point. It's meant to get at a real situation, but maybe soften it a little bit. So if we were in a congregation and there was someone struggling with a particular sin, and I said, well, let's pretend there was a man who struggled with such and such a thing, or let's pretend there was a, a woman who struggled with such and such a thing. I might be saying that in a way to sort of narrow in on that particular person's situation. Right? If you think of the book of Philippians, uh, Paul at the end of the book sort of entreats these two women. We don't know what they were fighting about. We don't know what was causing the, divi the division. But there's these women, uh, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, I entreat you to put aside your differences. Now, he could have also said, let's pretend there were two women who'd worked together in the gospel. And now they're fighting with each other. What should they do? Right? This is a hypothetical with a point. And we know this is a hypothetical because he uses a structure. We actually talked about this last week, but he uses a structure that's rhetorical in an if-then conditional statement. So last week we talked about it with an if-then statement where there was an assumption that the if statement was true. This week, the if statement is actually far more hypothetical, but the then statement is seen to be true. So he says, if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. That whole chunk of text is the if statement. So if two people come in, probably we're talking about visitors. If two visitors come into your assembly who you don't know, we know they're visitors because they have to be instructed where to sit. They don't go to their usual spot where they know they, you know, where the, the seat shapes nice because they sit there every week. So these two visitors come in. One of them is dressed real nice. One of them is dressed real shabby. And the hypothetical ushers here bring the rich person to the front. You sit right here. This is the best seat. It's right next to the air conditioning. You're going to be nice and comfortable. You've got a great view of the flowers. And the poor person goes, well, we could probably squeeze you in somewhere in the back. We kind of joked about Gene sitting outside. It'd be like if we said, well, if you sit outside the window on the grass, uh, you can still hear the sermon. So why don't you go sit out there? And he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is where the hypothetical gets real concrete. That phrase, have you not, in Greek is a construction that implies the answer to the question is yes. So he says, hypothetically, let's pretend these two people come in and you behave this way. And then he says, haven't you made distinctions already between yourselves, among yourselves? You see how that's a little bit of a jab, but it softens it. So we're dealing with a, a, a target audience that is expecting visitors, right? The book of James is written to the Jews in dispersion. So we're probably talking about Jewish Christians who had fled from Jerusalem out into the rest of the promised land and into the Roman empire. And he's hearing about these situations where they're exercising the sin of partiality in his context, particularly with the rich and the poor, but it doesn't have to be that we can, we can think about this in terms of a variety of categories. Verse two and three are not specifically um, exclusively referring to material wealth. And just to demonstrate that, turn over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. This was um, used for our call to worship. But if you look at the Beatitudes, it says in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in the Bible, more so in the Old Testament than the New Testament, but in both uh, both Testaments, the category of poor can refer to people who just don't have a lot of money. But more often than not, poor is more like the downtrodden, the people who are hard on their luck, the widows, the orphans, the strangers in a strange land, the people who, who don't have the means and the social system and structures to protect them from the predators that are out there. That's the poor. The rich in James's day, they could afford people to defend them physically. They could bribe the courts if they did something illegal. They could do all sorts of things to make sure that their life was going to be just fine. So James continues, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and not the rich one and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine that you are going about your daily business at work and uh, somebody comes up to you and asks you about your faith. And so you as a evangelical are excited to tell them all about the gospel and all about Jesus Christ. So you share with them with good faith and good effort. And a couple of days later, you're called into the HR office. And this person has gone there and has slandered you and said you said all sorts of things and you tried to force your religion on them. Now imagine that that person comes to church on Sunday. Now, we should be kind to everyone. It's entirely possible that that hypothetical person may have had a change of heart. Hopefully that's what's happening. But it's also possible that that person is coming with ill intent. So James's rhetorical force here is that God has chosen the poor. He's elevated the poor in spirit. He's rewarded the meek. The meek will inherit the earth. The downtrodden will be lifted up. That rich person who slandered you in the HR office, are you going to show them favoritism over the one that God has elevated? Now, this is a tricky situation, and we acknowledge that in practice, there's, there's difficulty to this. But the rhetorical force of this is that James is showing his audience how ridiculous it is to pander to the wealthy who have no intention of doing anything except harming them, and to oppress the poor who are the ones that God has chosen to inherit the kingdom. So James is showing you that this is not just a sin, but it's also a form of insanity. It's a form of ignoring who you are and who God is. So why is partiality a sin? Besides, besides the fact that it's a little bit insane, besides the fact that it um, demonstrates in a certain way that we don't understand who God is, the main problem is that it causes us to assess things and to look at things from a worldly category. That's what the sin of partiality always does, is it takes our eyes off what God thinks is important and it puts our eyes on what man thinks is important. It takes our eyes off of the fact that it, the Bible says that the wealthy 
uh, it's more difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It takes our eyes off of that and puts it on the idea that, well, maybe if that person who's got a really nice Rolex on, maybe if we convince them to stay, then we won't have the same church budget issues that we've been struggling with. You see how that's a a not-so-subtle shift from what God desires to what man thinks is valuable? We won't go there because I have other elements of this uh, text that I want to focus on. But if you were to turn over to 1 Samuel 9 uh, and to 1 Samuel 10, what you'll see is the the anointing and the coronation of, of Saul as the first king of Israel. And the text implies that Samuel believed to a certain level Samuel believed that Saul was being chosen for external categories. The text kind of out of nowhere calls out uh, when Saul is being being crowned in front of the people of Israel. Kind of out of nowhere just as well. And he was a head taller and more handsome than the rest of the Israelites. Now we might think that that's a throwaway comment, but the Bible doesn't have any throwaway comments. And when you turn over to 1 Samuel 16, which is the anointing of uh, David, Samuel uh, comes and and Jesse lines up all of his sons, except for David, who is out in the field taking care of the sheep. And Samuel comes to Eliab. And the text specifically comments that Samuel says something along the lines of, surely this one who is of great stature is the one that that the Lord has chosen. So it seems as though Samuel was not being given insight from God at that point on why a particular king was being chosen, just being told which king was to be anointed. Because immediately following that, uh, God corrects him. And he says, man looks at outward categories. I'm paraphrasing here. Man looks at outward categories, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when scrawny, wimpy little David, who's out in the field and is a little kid, he's probably maybe 12 or 13 years old at this point. Although I don't know how wimpy it is when you're fighting off bears with your bare hands. But it's this scrawny little kid. He comes in and he's anointed king. He can't even wear a full suit of armor when he goes to battle Goliath because it's too big. He can't even lift Saul's sword because it's not fitted to him. And he's the one that the Lord is going to anoint. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when we exercise the sin of partiality, basically what we're telling God is that our categories are better than his. When we choose to elevate someone that God has chosen to make low, We're saying we're wiser than the Lord. God often selects those who lack outward impressiveness to demonstrate his grace the most. So we see that in the Beatitudes, which we just read. It's not the rich in spirit that are, uh, that are the ones who inherit the kingdom. It's the poor in spirit. It's not the war makers with all the power who will see God. It's the peacemakers who will see God. And this isn't to make meekness or poor in spiritness or peacemakerness some new meritorious condition. It's not like we earn salvation by way of gaining these characteristics. But God chooses those people to, ma- to magnify his goodness. If you'll um, turn to 1 Corinthians 1, this is a pretty famous passage that illustrates this um, principle. 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to take a look at verses 20 through 31. Uh, 
where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our lack of trust in God, even those of us who are saved, even those of us who trust the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, don't do so perfectly. And our lack of trust in God and in God's ways are often revealed by the ways we court the approval of the world. Right? We oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, find that we don't speak up for the righteous cause when we should. Maybe we observe that a coworker is um, punching in and then not doing a lot of work. And when our manager asks us, I don't understand, we have enough people, we have enough staffing, but it doesn't seem like the work is getting done. What do you guys think is happening? We don't speak up. Right? Maybe it's maybe we, we observe a coworker tell a little white lie to a customer. Or we know that our neighbor brags about cheating on his taxes. And when the opportunity to say or do the right thing comes, we just sort of step back because we desperately crave the approval of the world. It's a constant battle for us. And the sin of partiality is one of the ways that we show that because we are more concerned with what the categories of the world tell us is productive and we're more concerned with what the rich person who comes and visits our church says. Even though the next day that person is going to throw us to the lions. Here's what John Calvin has to say about why it is important for us not to exercise the sin of partiality. He says, God would have those whom he has adopted, as he is to them a kind and indulgent father, to bear and exhibit his image on earth. So when we choose to be partial or discriminatory or to um, show favoritism, however we want to phrase that, we are working against the restored image of God. We're putting ourselves back into the image of the serpent in the garden. We're putting ourselves back under Satan's domain, if that were possible for the elect. It's not in, a, in an absolute sense, but we are saying that we in this moment, look more like the devil than we do like Jesus Christ. And in a certain sense, we're saying that we're okay with that because we choose to do it. I'm going to allow myself a very brief excursus here because there's a, there's a way that the sin of partiality plays itself out in the church and is playing itself out across 
conservative evangelical churches in the country that I think is important for all of us to keep our eyes open for. Um, you're probably going to recognize it even if you don't recognize the name of it. There's a philosophical movement that initially started in the law schools called critical law theory. Critical law theory is a, is a, a legal theory that is rooted in a philosophical system uh, called Hegelianism or Marxism. And Hegelianism is this idea that there's a status quo situation. Something happens that challenges that status quo and there's a conflict. And then the final outcome is the new status quo. And then there's another thing that challenges it and so on the cycle goes. And critical law theory looked at the, the fact that there was a disproportionate number of convictions in particular demographics. And instead of looking at the root causes for why those demographics seem to be committing more crimes, they made the switch to say, there's obviously an oppressive system in the law. And so critical law theory views all form of law, not just our forms of law, but all forms of law to be fundamentally about oppression. Critical law theory migrated into other branches of philosophy and the academy, and, and we, we've got something now called critical race theory, or more commonly now it's just critical theory. And the idea behind critical theory is that each person is this confluence of oppressed categories. And they, the intersection, the number of intersections of those oppressed categories determines how oppressed you are. And the point of laws and actions and uh, anything that we do is to take those people who have those more intersectional, it's called intersectionality, intersectional oppressive categories and find ways to elevate them. And the converse is the people who have less of those intersectional oppressed categories, we have to find ways to push them down. Now, hear me carefully when I say this. Racism is absolutely real. The average person of color in our country has a much more difficult life than the average person of uh, Caucasian descent. That is a sociological absolute fact. That doesn't mean every individual person of color or every individual Caucasian person, but on average, that's a fact. However, critical race theory, critical law theory, critical theory, what it seeks to do is to show partiality. It discriminates between people. It's a movement that says the way we solve discrimination is by discriminating even harder. And it masquerades as social justice. So in point of fact, if James was writing this to most evangelical churches in our day and age, he wouldn't be talking about the rich person and the poor person. He would probably be talking about the black person and the white person. Or the, the woman and the man. Because a woman has more intersectional categories than a man does. And a black woman has more intersectional categories than a white woman does. Now hear me again. There is sexism in our world. There is racism in our world. Those are evil, wicked sins that need to be fought and disabused and expelled from the church. Absolutely. But we don't do that by discriminating further. Just like we don't elevate the poor person by making the rich person give them their money. James is not advocating that. So that's my little brief discursus, but it's a real insidious threat in our, in our church. And it's a direct outcome of this passage that we have to talk about it. We don't have a choice but to address discrimination. And unfortunately, this form of discrimination is starting to become very popular in our churches. 
So why is this sin so contrary to the gospel? I mean, we know it is. There's been all sorts of discussion now that this sin is, is going to draw us away from the categories that God finds are important. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has concretely and actually saved all of those whom he's chosen, not based on anything in them worthy of being saved, but purely out of his own good pleasure. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, everybody loves, knows that I love me some catechism, says, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not based on any foreseen faith. God didn't look down the corridor of time and decide this person was already going to believe in me, so I'm going to choose them, right? God is not the uh, the timid uh, high school senior who asks out the only girl in school that he knows has a crush on him, Right? He's not picking the one he knows is going to pick him. He makes the unlovable lovable by placing his affection on them. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we show favor to others based on these external worldly categories, what we do is we act as though God's free choice to save, not based on these categories, is foolish. We turn the gospel into a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. Turn over to Matthew 18. Um, this was our meditation verse, and we're going to spend the remaining uh, balance of our time here looking at this in a little bit of detail. So Matthew 18, verses 23. This comes immediately after the famous discussion on church discipline. So although we don't have time to go into that, we should read this in light of that. And what that tells me is that we should think about this parable and this explanation as particularly applicable to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches the disciples how to execute church discipline, which the final step of church discipline is to expel the person and to consider them an unbeliever if they refuse to repent. So these are the kind of people he's talking about in this parable. This is a further expansion of that. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Just pause there for a second. 10,000 talents is an unimaginable, impossible amount of money for most of us to, to ever think about. One talent was equivalent roughly to 20 years wages for a day laborer. So if we're talking about 10,000 talents, we're talking about 200,000 years worth of wages for an average day laborer. In today's economy, the, with the average income in New Hampshire being about $37,000, we're talking about $7.4 billion. Now, this is an element of the parable that I think we sometimes miss. And I, I only caught it this last time because I was thinking about this from a particular angle. Verse 29, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. How ridiculous is it for a man who is in $7.4 billion worth of debt to ask his debtor to have patience and he will pay him everything? That's a pretty laughable statement. But nevertheless, and here's where the, the master in this parable takes on the place of God. 
not out of a, uh, this is my commentary, not out of a desire to reclaim that money, not out of uh, being impressed with this man's devotion to repaying the debt, but verse 27, out of pity for him. The master was not impressed by this ridiculous claim that he was going to pay him back. If he actually was impressed by that, he probably would have said, great, I'm looking forward to having the $7.4 billion back in my bank account. But instead, he forgives him the debt. Now, this same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii was equivalent to one day's worth of a laborer's wage. So we're talking maybe $20,000. It's not a small amount of money. 100 denarii, 100 days of work, thirty, you know, $20,000, but not an insurmountable amount. This is a, a feasible debt that could be repaid. This servant fell down and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So after he hears from this man, he says, you owe me 100 days labor. He grabs him by the throat. He pushes him up against the wall and says, pay me what you owe. And the man says, please, I don't have the money, but if you give me a little bit of time, I will repay you everything. Now, this man who was just forgiven a $7.4 billion debt thinks that the appropriate course of action is to demand the $20,000 debt be repaid. That is three ten thousandths of a percent of what he owed the master. And he insists on having that paid back. This would be like if um, I was forgiven a $30,000 debt and Gene owed me a penny and I threw him up against the wall and shook him down until he managed to give me that penny. This is supposed to be a ridiculous scenario. The people listening to this are supposed to go, that does not make any sense. Shouldn't that person instead be looking at the idea that they were $7.4 billion in the hole, roughly, and now they're, whatever they have to their name, they're that much positive? Who cares if they don't get this 100 denarii debt back? That's the, that's the nature of this parable. When we have been forgiven an insurmountable debt by the Lord, out of his free mercy, out of his free decision to save us, not out of any foreseen faith, not out of any foreseen merit, not out of anything lovable within us, yet we refuse to show mercy and forgiveness to those around us, what we tell that person and what we tell the world and what we tell the Lord is that he's an idiot. That he should have demanded we pay that debt back because that's what we're going to do. When we exercise the sin of partiality, we make that same mistake. We choose to show favor based on outward categories to those who earn it by means of worldly categories. And we deny the nature of God's gratuitous grace. There was probably a time where we came into the church and we probably didn't look so great. Whether that's because we had, you know, bad clothes or because we uh, were spiritually in disarray. There are times that we come into this church and we're the poor man. There are probably times that we come into this church and we're the rich man. We're feeling pretty good. We had a good quiet time that morning. James is not saying necessarily here that wealth is bad. He's not saying that the, the category that is being favored is a bad category. 
it is a more difficult category biblically. It's harder for the wealthy to become saved than it is for the poor. There's lots of reasons for that. That's a different sermon, probably later on in the book of James here. But there are times that we've been the poor person. We would not want the, uh, the church of God to tell us to sit out on the grass. We wouldn't want the church of God to tell us, well, you can sit over here on the floor. Why don't you sit back in the bathroom? You can probably still hear back there. I mean, there's space. What do you care? What we would want the church of God to do is to welcome us and to embrace us and to see us as brothers, not as someone to be discriminated against. So that's the application for us. This is primarily about how we treat people in, within the church. The New Testament was written to Christians. So although there are principles and application generally to how we interact with the world, that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about how we treat our Christian brothers and sisters, those who claim the name of Jesus. So I think we need to all walk away from this and think hard about it. Do we accept those who claim the name of Christ purely on the fact that they are our brothers and sisters? Do we love them exclusively because the Holy Spirit lives within them? Or do we at times, you know, maybe push them away a little bit because they don't like, they don't wear the clothes that we like, or they don't listen to the music or watch the TV shows that we like, or they don't have the kind of job that we like. We don't have the liberty to do that, brothers and sisters. I told you this was going to be one of those, I need to say brothers and sisters a lot kind of sermons. I'm preaching to myself here too. I make quick snap judgments on people all the time. I'm very analytical and I'm very quick to make an assessment. And this is, this is a convicting sermon for me because I do that a lot. Not so much with, with this church. You're all my family and I know you and I love you. But there are times that I interact with someone that I know that claims to be a Christian and I just, I don't like that guy very much. That guy's argument is really stupid. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I probably say that on a daily basis and I need to, need to get that under control. So think about the ways that you rush to snap judgment and you discriminate. You show partiality or favoritism in reference to other Christians. And then seek repentance, right? It's not our lack of showing partiality that saves us. It's the fact that the Lord Jesus died for us and was raised for us and ascended to the Father and, and intercedes on our behalf. So go to the throne of grace, seek the Lord's forgiveness, and allow the Holy Spirit to change you moving forward. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you are the perfect judge and that you alone have all of the information to assess people. And yet you have still seen fit to save the unlovable and send your son to die for those who were still his enemies. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that is patterned after his, that even if we were being abused and murdered, that we would be able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How much less should we love those in our midst that maybe just don't behave exactly the way we want them to? So Lord, help us to bear your image as your adopted sons and daughters, to reflect your glory into a watching world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.